Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Aaron, and with me, as usual, for tonight's conversation is my best friend and teammate, a.k.a. co-host, Patrick. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> I like it. I wish we could, like, pump in some ESPN music. Yeah, exactly. Although SportsCenter doesn't really fit for the game, but yeah, whatever. Anyway. With Monday, January the 10th being the day that Alabama plays Georgia again for the 2021 College Football National Championship, we thought it appropriate to discuss this newly released film adaptation of a stage play about a fictional college star quarterback staging a strike just hours before the same big game in order to fight for fair compensation, equality, and respect for the athletes who put their bodies and health on the line for their schools. It's a perfect time to be talking football and all about the ever-changing and challenging world of amateur athletics. Patrick, go deep. Here we go. This is your spoiler alert for National Champions, the movie, which you can get now on video on demand. I don't think it's still in theaters. It had a very short run at the beginning of December. Unfortunately, yeah. got pushed out by things like Spider-Man, Spider-Man, and Spider-Man, and Matrix, and then Spider-Man. <laughs> so, Spider this is your warning. Go get it. Go check it out. It's worth it. It's worth your money. It's worth your time. All right, Patrick, anytime that a film is depicting something that we feel very familiar with, I think that authenticity seems to come into play in how much we are going to enjoy said depiction of thing, because we have a bit of a personal standard that is set due to our own experiences. And so you and I are, as we just kind of alluded to, big college football fans. And this movie is set in a fake college football world that has faux ESPN coverage. It has interaction with real life ESPN and other media celebrities and personalities. It has interaction that takes place between characters and football and basketball, professional athletes. I compare it somewhat to the way that Free Guy integrated in the modern day video game culture and how it used Twitch streaming and YouTube gaming and the way that personalities comment on video game playing and play games for people to watch online and things like that. It's very similar to how that worked. So I wanted to know... Did that work for you? Did it help to immerse you into this world that was being created around this scenario? Or was it distracting? To be blunt, it was distracting. And I think once we got into the conversations inside the hotel and with that story where we weren't really fueled by pundits and personalities from around the sports world, I felt like I was more comfortable in it. The issue that I have with movies that do this is that if you're going to go halfway it really makes it less believable and less immersive. And I understand that you have to have some creative liberty. Sometimes you don't get the right people or you don't get all the people. But we get ESPN personalities without recognizing ESPN. We talk about conferences and we mention the SEC and we mention Vanderbilt, but we don't really mention 
that this is an SEC, I think it's a Big 12 matchup. And watching it, at least at the very beginning, I almost felt like if you're going to do it, do it all the way or make it parody. Like, don't go halfway. Give me fake teams. Give me fake announcers played by actual announcers, but don't make them Marv Alberts or whoever. Don't give me actual people that I connect with real networks or real telecasts like Mike, like Mike and Mike, those kinds of personalities. I know that world. And when you sort of halfway throw them in, you don't show me the ESPN logo at the bottom. I don't believe that I'm actually in a world that I, that exists. And so I'd rather you give me a completely fake world to represent sort of allegorically the story that you're going to tell and the message you're going to give me. Because that the message wouldn't be lost. I think the message is very clear. It's very well articulated. And not having authenticity to it isn't going to negate the importance of the message. It will not get lost. So for me, once we got past that, and got into the actual dialogue with our main characters, talking with the coach, talking with lawyers, people that I'm not really familiar with on a more personal level. I just know them from interviews with other personalities on sports network like ESPN or Fox. That's when it felt like, okay, this feels more like a drama that I can I can buy into based on real life stuff going on. And so it feels more like a biopic. And I talked to you about this offline and it reminded me of Adam McKay, the big short, but it also reminded me of Jay Short in Bombshell, where you have real life stuff and depictions of people that get intertwined in these stories to sort of give you the connectivity that this is real life, this really happens, we're not just telling you a what if story, but this may have happened, this could have happened, this will happen. And I think that that's why I made those kinds of connections, not necessarily from a stylistic point of view, but the attempt to put in real and fantasy right next to each other and try to intertwine them. For me, it didn't quite work as well as I wanted it to, but as long as the message got across, which it did, and I'm really glad we're going to get into it because it's a fantastic discussion. I was not distracted at all. I really enjoyed the movie. And yes, I wish that this was, like you mentioned offline, this was promoted like crazy by the NCAA or by ESPN. Maybe not NCAA because that's probably not the best light that they're being put in. But at least by ESPN or Fox, you know, pick a network. Even if it's not ESPN, there are other networks, CBS Sports, NBC Sports, that are somewhat connected to college football and allow that kind of immersion to really bring you in. You mentioned free guy. I didn't have as much of an issue with that because I'm not as familiar with the Twitch streaming world. So none of it felt overly real or overly fake. It just felt like, Oh cool. This is a movie. Oh cool. That's cool. They're bringing in YouTube people. That's neat. Even in uh, some TV shows where you're like mythic quest, you are dealing with a video game company and occasionally you hit over to, I can't remember the guy's name, but it's a popular YouTuber. I know that that's not real, but it depicts something that could be real or that is real. And while it doesn't look like an authentic YouTube video, even though the interface is all there, 
I'm willing to suspend my disbelief. And I think that if you had attached the story itself to an authentic network or an authentic connection with the real world of college football, I think it would have made the immersion a little bit easier for me, but it wasn't distracting. That's interesting. I, you know, I get it totally, 100% understand. For me, it was noticeable, I would say, but not distracting. I did geek out and free guy a little bit when I recognized folks and I could lean over to my son and be like, oh my gosh, that's Jacksepticeye. Ah, oh my gosh, that's Pokemon A. And they make fun of me because that's apparently not how you pronounce their name, but whatever. And that was a lot of fun. But then here in this, some of the ones at the beginning, in that beginning section, I think that really threw you for a loop when it, it opens with it. It's giving you this intro to the game and the situation. It's setting everything up, which I think is very smart. So that when we get to the action in the film, which we're going to talk about in just a second, that first opening sequence in the bedroom, in the, in the hotel room, it, it's really powerful stuff, the way that we jump right into it. But I can see how with it not being branded totally authentically, it's like, okay, what am I watching? And then at the same time, like you said, then we get real ESPN personalities. We get, we, they literally call Greeny. They call him Greeny. His name's Mike Greenberg. And they call him Greeny, which is what everybody calls him and get him on the phone and like do a, a specific announcement with him on the air live. Well, that would have been on ESPN that, so it feels weird not to see ESPN kind of coming across your screen. Mostly it didn't bother me though. And I kind of liked it. I like seeing Russell Wilson for five seconds on the TV as a Seattle Seahawks fan. I like hearing them name drop LeBron James and being in their DMs on Instagram as a Lakers fan. You know, like I enjoyed those references and those connections, but I agree that they were definitely not something that adds a ton to the film by any stretch of the imagination. One other quick thing I wanted to ask you, there's no action in this movie. And so when I went into it, I hadn't seen a trailer. I just knew it was a movie about the national championship game and the strike that was going to kind of take place around it. I actually didn't know the details. I mentioned in the intro, this is an adaptation of a stage play, which if this is your first time hearing that, I think you're probably going, oh, it's probably clicking into place that the style of this movie very much feels like an adaptation of a stage play. There are so many single room set pieces, the traveling parts from point A to point B. There's no action stuff. It's all getting people in a room and creating a dramatic moment and then talking through that. That's how you would have to do it if you were on a stage. And it worked for me. It felt like a very glossy, cinematic-y version of that, like a Steven Soderbergh has done previously in something like High Flying Bird. That was the movie that I remember telling you about that this really had a similarity to, to me, also a sports kind of drama in this vein. But that lack of football, it was glaring to me the first time I watched this until I really settled into the movie. And even then, Patrick, I was waiting for it. The whole movie, I was like, we're going to play the game, right? Like at some point, whether LaMarcus is in it or not, I'm going to get to see the game. And you don't. There's like a couple plays of, of random football shots, which are, they look terrible. So I'm glad they didn't try to do more. 
couple shots of like J.K. Simmons on the sidelines, which is which is fine. You're just setting the the tone or whatever. But did it bother you at all? Did you want football in this movie? I want football when it's good football. I don't want football just for the sake of football. And this is a, a great comparison to a movie like Draft Day that I absolutely love. Would be a phenomenal double feature, by the way. I thought the same I, thing. I absolutely, I absolutely think so, too. What makes Draft Day so great is that authenticity. It's all in with the NFL. Like Everything about it is about the NFL because it's what? Draft Day. So when you name something national champions or when you center something around an event that's as recognizable as the college football playoff national championship, which it's not called that, by the way, because you probably couldn't get away with it. You couldn't get the rights to it. You have to lean back a little bit and rely on what story you're telling. So I think just like draft day, it leans into those conversations and those conversations really have to pack a punch. And for the most part, they all did. They all felt purposeful. The transition scenes were short. They got our characters from point A to point B, either through a car or through a walk and talk. But the fact is, this was a stage play. And I didn't know that until I was reading the notes. But yeah, it clicked with me. It was like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Lots of talking. And it's not Aaron Sorkin dialogue. So you know, it doesn't have to be. It must be a stage play because Aaron Sorkin can put stuff on the big screen and be fine. But you have a lot of this emphasis on really getting us to what's going to happen. And the movie doesn't waste any time. I think 10 minutes in, we're getting to the demands. And then we start having all these pockets of conversations. And I think one of the things that it does well, Aaron, is that it gives us that inside look of life behind the hotel. You know, those three or four days where these two teams, in particular, these individuals of one team, but in some extent, both teams, you see their world. You see that life doesn't stop a few days before the national championship. And these guys are just hanging out, going to pools and eating pizza. There's other stuff going on. There are obligations from coaching staff. They have to be certain places and do their things. And I, I don't doubt that this is stuff that doesn't happen or that stuff happens. So it was really cool to see a little behind the scenes look of, okay, it can be chaotic. And so to have to set all this stuff up, dude, it felt like a heist almost. Suspenseful. We're getting these gears going, you know, popping through different hotel rooms. And I'm like, that was unexpected. So this felt a little bit like a suspense movie in some ways because of having to kind of fly under the radar with uh, with LaMarcus and Emmett. And you almost felt like it wasn't a road movie or anything like that, but it really felt like when are they going to get caught or if they do get caught, what are they going to say? And so each one of those moments where they're either talking to a coach or talking to a reporter or talking to somebody, it pushes that story along, gives us more perspective and it expands the whole idea of what's being explored here. So I'd actually be curious to see what the stage production looks like, how they get through Me all too. this. And, you know, do they switch that many hotel rooms? Do they, I mean, that's a lot of set pieces, but I, oh, I would sure think, they don't. Yeah. I would think, I would think that they do it for dramatic effect for the movie to, to give energy to the, uh, to the story because you can't, you know, unless you're 12 men in a room <laughs> trying to go over a verdict of a, of a murderer, it's probably not going to work in one room. You have to move around. Right. Well, like on a stage play, what you would do is you would have some spinning wall and you would have an event take place in one room 
And then you would have some dialogue as the characters were walking to the front of the stage, talking about the fact that they were going to be transitioning to the next room. And then the wall would flip around and then there'd be other characters behind it that they would then walk in and interact with. It would be something very similar to that where, but yeah, the energy level would be so much lower and I loved it. I love the energy level. I loved the score to this movie. I thought it was really impactful in helping to kind of raise that tension right off the bat. When we see them in that bedroom, we got LaMarcus and we got Emmett Sunday, his best friend, and they are kind of getting into the zone. It's like they're getting their courage up to do this thing. And I love that it immediately introduces us to kind of how close these, this friendship is. There's great dialogue throughout the whole movie between the two of them, I think. Emmett, in that beginning section, talks about how they could call this whole thing off. And he's like, you know, we put a lot of effort into this. Our plan is detailed. It's okay. It's going to work. But if if you want to do it, we can get rid of this and we can just consider it grad project credit. <laughs> um, so you can tell that there's a little bit of nervousness about it. And the other thing I love about that opening sequence as we get into this is that Pulp Fiction prayer recital and them acting out the shootout at the end of the movie when they they go over and they say, oh, the path of a righteous man is beset on all sides with the iniquities of the selfish and the tyranny of evil men. And the what I love this about like stage play e Sorkin-esque dialogue and writing. Because when you read that whole part, it is so much in tune with what they are about to do and what they are seeking to do in destabilizing the entire world of college athletics because they feel it is tyrannical to the student athlete and they are going to attack it because they feel it's selfish and they want to take it down. And the fact that that shootout, it's almost prophetic because the way that it ends in this kind of self-sacrifice at the same time as them accomplishing their goal. And it sets up this idea of a religious kind of nature of these two characters as well. For one thing, his name is Emmett Sunday, which is hilarious because he is often quoting the Bible. Lamarcus is as well. They seem pretty religious. And you get a double dose of that fun pop culture reference that these are two normal high school dudes who love movies. They you know, act out Pulp Fiction here in the first scene and then multiple times throughout the movie. Even the, the very last scene of the movie in the very end, the way that Emmett describes it cracks me up because he says, yeah, we're like the rebels in Rogue One. We did it on the beach or we died on the beach, but the plans for the Death Star make it off the island. And so they are constantly like using these references, just as you would expect a couple of 18, 19, 20 year old dudes to do this kind of movies. And I think it really gets you in the zone to kind of, I don't know, I just, I feel very close to them as we are building up to LaMarcus going to the point where he's going to, you know, lay out his demands. So maybe we should start with that relationship because it, it is so important and vital throughout the film before we talk about the actual demands and our feelings on what he's requesting and how it all kind of gets played out amongst these groups but was there anything about the relationship between him and his friend and partner and not partner like 
romantically, but his teammate Emmett, his, his partner in this project, his buddy. Like, I just personally really loved every time that they were on scene together. I thought mm-hmm. that they made such a great pair of friends. I think it's necessary because if Lamarcus is this lone wolf, he represents only one vantage point of or one representative of this kind of vantage point. Emmett rep- represents a completely different one. And there's a great scene where I believe, yeah, it's Lamarcus is talking to Greeny and he compares Emmett's house and his parents and how they really are living paycheck to paycheck. Typically after college, he's probably going to find something else to do because he's not getting drafted by the NFL. And he wasn't necessarily saying he's a bad player, but he's not the paycheck player going first round for 30 mil. And then, of course, he contrasts that with Coach Lazer's four houses that um, that really point to the disparity between amateur players and coaches. And I think if you didn't have that personal connection with somebody like Emmett, if you didn't have their relationship, it would feel as though Emmett was that token poor kid, white, black, and different. But you needed a foil or at least a contrasting athlete, student athlete, to be sitting next to LaMarcus. Because otherwise, his story and his motives would have felt disingenuous. Yes, he's making a sacrifice by sitting this out. He's giving up his chance to go first round in the NFL. That story's been told. But in some ways, when... It's almost as if this was, there was an experience I had working uh, on a, a, a as a, a union member, which I'll just tell you, I don't like CBAs necessarily. I've had bad experiences with them, but our, there was negotiations coming up and health insurance was a, was a huge issue. And we had folks that were not part of the union fighting for us. And at the time I was like, oh, wow, that's awesome. People are fighting for us. But the fact is they didn't have a stake in the game. They weren't losing or gaining health insurance. They weren't losing or gaining this benefit. They were outside looking in. So it was easy for them to fight for that. It's like telling someone who has a ton of money, they have no problem fighting for people who don't because they don't know what that's like to not have it. They don't have any skin in the game. And so when you look at the relationship between LaMarcus and Emmett, you get two things. One, you get a genuine friendship that's not based on talent. It's not based on any kind of... Uh, comparative qualities or abilities, they genuinely do love hanging out with each other. And playing out that scene from Pulp Fiction, I think, is a great way to set the tone for their relationship. They're both willing from different walks of life to make the same kind of sacrifice, to sit out the game and to do it for the same reasons. And I think if you didn't have that, you would lose some of the impact that LaMarcus has in some of his conversations independently with Laser and other folks. So you need a wingman, essentially. And I think that Emmett was LaMarcus's goose <laughs> in a lot of ways, where he was kind of lighthearted. He was the yes man. He was the hype man. And in some ways, he wasn't the guy necessarily bringing the he wasn't preaching but he was bringing the energy with and he would affirm and just continue to affirm LaMarcus and so I think they both needed each other in the, in that regard so there was definitely a mutual 
benefit of their relationship. Plus, they're just fun to watch together, as you mentioned. Yeah, no, I think I think both performances are really, really good, especially Stephen James as Lamarcus. But Alexander Ludwig as Emmett, I think, is very underrated. People will look at it. I've watched a bunch of videos and I've read a bunch of online reviews from the few folks that it seems have actually seen the film. And there's been some criticism of him as being bland and kind of boring in this movie. And I just don't see it. I think he plays that role perfectly. I think it's a great performance for what he is supposed to be doing. He's a beat up guy. Like he walks around, his you know knees are broken and he's the prototypical student athlete who is now on their last legs quite literally yeah and giving their all breaking their body for this game yeah whether and these are just the ones that are in the national championship game right and the whole point of this is that marcus is fighting for all of them mm -hmm. the hundreds upon hundreds upon thousands of ones that never sniff a national championship game but that are going to walk out completely broken for the rest of their lives physically and have won nothing and i also love that they are at multiple or at different times they both protect each other emmett gets extremely defensive when they first bring up the situation with the kid that got beat up and hurt and they bring up lamarcus's brother emmett's like oh no you're not going there and then lamarcus at the end when they try to blackmail him by what's going to happen to emmett and now he's going to be the one to get drugged through. He ultimately protects him. And that may not be the only reason for his decision. He lies to him, too, in the end, because Emmett says, like, you didn't do this for me, right? And he's like, no, of course not. And I think that that answer is both a lie and both truth. I don't think that's the only reason, but I think it factored in. And you can tell from the acting performance. And then they went through and made up this really intricate, well thought out, you know, detailed event that, that was going to take place from the first announcement, the first tweets that get sent out to the first TV appearance to how are they going to get to the hotel with the opposing team members and talk to them. They like buy pizza for the freshmen and sophomores because they know that's what's going to get to them, right? That's what's going to inspire them. They are trying to get at the heart of what matters to each and every type of person that they talk with. He's got this bag of burner phones. It's a great moment in the car where he's like, I wonder how many of these we're going to go through, right? Because he's like, and he tells, it's a very detailed movie. That's one thing I really appreciate about it. There's a little line of throwaway dialogue at the beginning of their whole excursion where he says to LaMarcus, he just says real quickly, you turn location off on your phone? And then they just keep rolling. But like that's critical to the plot in that Lamarcus is not supposed to be found throughout the whole entirety of this film. And so he reminds him, he's like, okay, we're going to turn off this. We're going to put phones over here in this, um, what was it, like tin foil yeah. to protect them from not being able to be. Like the detail yeah. is so cool in their plan. Mm -hmm. Okay, so his demands. Uh, Lamarcus is trying to change how student athletics works forever and his goals are incredibly ambitious while this movie was being filmed and or while it was being adapted i should say because obviously the story had already been written for the stage the college athletics in real time finally approved name image and likeness which allows student athletes to profit off of 
their name, image, and likeness. So they're able to sell that for marketing purposes, advertisement, and make money on that. That is what NIL is. And that is all NIL is. And I think it's very important to note that. I've read some things on message boards that got me frustrated. I actually got into a Reddit fight. <laughs> Shocking. If you go on Reddit, that's all it is, is fights. It wasn't really a fight. It was a conversation. But an, a disagreement with someone who was trying to say the movie was irrelevant now because of NIL. And I was saying, no, it's not even close to irrelevant. The movie doesn't even deal with NIL. NIL is not one of the things that LaMarcus is asking for. What LaMarcus is asking for goes way beyond name, image, and likeness and the ability to make money off of your name. So what LaMarcus is asking for affects all of college athletics, which is what really creates the depth of the complexity here in potentially executing on his demands and whether or not that would work and what that would mean. So he asked for three things. He says, we want the NCAA to create a non-revocable player-controlled trust for every athlete. So basically a pension. Like we want them to have some sort of money paid to them. We want them to be employees. And we want them to be able to get that when they're done, right? The NCAA will form and contribute to a player's disability pension, specifically for injured athletes, so that they would be able to have medical insurance, and if they got hurt playing college sports, that would be covered. The NCAA will officially recognize and collectively bargain with the players union, and this was the, the big one, right? They want to essentially unionize. And he says, in this, the NCAA will recognize players as employees and not student athletes. So these are incredibly humongous asks. They are bold. They are well-meaning for sure. I think he has the best interest of players at heart. He seems to really, truly care. There's a constant illusion, metaphor, I don't always get these words confused, about the silo in Galilee or the, the farm in Galilee. I can't remember what the phrase was. The grain the grain in Galilee. That's it. The grain in Galilee, right? But basically, he was saying, like, there's a tower full of food sitting there, and they're just not giving it to us because they're keeping it and hoarding it for themselves. They just want the wealth and they just want us to to be slaves eventually, which that'll come into play here in a little bit in a later part of a conversation. So what did you think about his demands? I guess is where we'll just start with this is, did you like them? Did you agree with them? And did the way the film handled how they were approached from various angles, i.e. his coaching staff, different levels of player, meaning you have LaMarcus himself, who's a Heisman winner, but then you have the kind of companion piece to him on the opposing team, who was a stud running back who he has to convince. And that guy has a lot to lose out. He's going to be a first round top 10 draft pick as well. But then you have like the young kids and you have the coaching staff, you have the administrators for the NCAA, you have the conference chairman, who is getting tons and tons of revenue off of his team being there. You have lawyers and litigators involved as well. How did this all kind of work for you, the main crux of the story? It's complicated. 
I mean, there was a lot going through my head initially. And even now, I think the demands are reasonable. I think that in the context of the story, it's ridiculous. Because what can you get done in 72 hours that takes so much nuance and so many conversations to work out? That's a threat. That's a demand. He's sitting in a bank holding people hostage and he's saying, I want a million dollars. I need it in 72 hours. In some ways, that's how I felt, even though I agree with the reasons why and the needs, particularly the disability pension. Student athletes need health insurance because part of their role as an athlete, one of the byproducts is the idea of getting hurt. That's what happens. When you're an athlete, you run the risk of getting hurt. Yes, as an employee at my job, do I run the risk of getting hurt? Yes, I could fall down the stairs. But I'm not constantly in an environment where one of the requirements for my job is to make sure I stretch and lift and run and make sure that I, my body is in great shape. And so I would think that the, the needs of a student athlete should lend themselves to health-related benefits. With regard to recognizing these players as employees, this is where the nuance and the conversations. And in my opinion, the exploratory committee needs to exist to invite him and other student athletes to be voices at that table, not just a set of adults that are saying that, you know, the adults are talking, we'll make the decisions and you kids are going to deal with it. No, he needs to be a representative at that table. But I think the fact is you have questions after question after question that will get brought up. Okay. If you're recognized as an employee, what does that mean for your scholarship? If you're getting some kind of paycheck or a pension or some kind of compensation, are you now not eligible for scholarship? Does, do scholarships get thrown out the window? Where do the importance of, of, of academics come in? Because what I hear in the movie is, particularly in that, what I would call that sermon he gives to the freshmen eating Pizza Hut pizza, by the way. And just as a side note, there was a lot of little product placement here. Snickers, yeah, Pizza absolutely. Hut. I mean, there's a, I don't know if there's a little irony there, maybe a little like kind of I wink to like, yeah, we're making money off of this movie about, you know, companies making too much money off of kids. And we see freshmen eating, you know, Pizza Hut pizza. But as he's talking to these guys, one of the things he says is we bust our butts all the time as athletes. It's a full-time job. And we're also expected to be students. That has to be taken into consideration because that is a true statement. I'm not an athlete, but I've known athletes in high school who that's what they do. They live and breathe college or high school, college athletics. And then the education is a side product. So when you see on a Saturday night football game, student athletes, you know, this guy is a 3.8 GPA in this major. That's a big deal, Aaron, because these guys are yep. studs on the field and they're doing these things off the field. We don't really recognize that because as college football fans, we're just like, you know, all they do is college football. Oh, yeah, and they go to class. They take they take basket weaving. <laughs> no, they don't. I mean, these are these are kids who recognize that they're probably not going to go pro. Half these kids that play, again, my LSU Tigers, you had the scout team out there, literally. You had second and third stringers, some of which were seniors, and that was going to be their last game. And they're going to go on with a college degree because they didn't have the ability to opt out early like Cade York, the stud kicker that we're losing, 
foregoing his senior season because he can he has the ability to go pro. Joe Burrow, well, Joe Burrow is a fifth year senior, but you have so many of these fantastic athletes that you hear about that can declare for the draft early, but you don't hear about these guys that are part of the practice squad and the second team, and they're there because they love it. They're there because they love playing football and it's a part of their world. And so when I look at this movie and I hear these demands, I don't think they're unreasonable. I don't know that they're so black and white that they can get solved by some guy holding a group of people hostage, despite how I feel about those people being held hostage that could pay the ransom, that have more than enough resources to get that done. I think that the issues that he brings up are legitimate, but they're so nuanced, they need a conversation to happen. They need a series of conversations to happen. Because what I think the film does is it creates opportunities with those rebuttals, particularly with Catherine Poe's explanation. I think that's a fantastic perspective of like, what about these other sports that are not football and basketball? Are you looking out for those guys? Are you looking out for that golf guy who just won your national championship, but you don't hear about it on page one, you hear about it on page eight because it's not a an income building sport. I mean, only recently, maybe in the last 10, 12, 13 years, has baseball become an important part of NCAA uh, public opinion? Not as much as football and basketball, but she makes a good point that you got to think about those guys. And so I think there are pockets of the movie that really do emphasize that. So the outcome, I think, feels a little too compartmentalized because while I respect well, Marcus James' character sitting out and the things that he's doing, what happens? He sits out, his coach loses a lot, and maybe an exploratory committee is what ends up happening as a result of this. So does he win? Does he lose? I don't know. Um, and what are we actually fighting for? If I'm fighting for the issues, I would probably agree with the more long-term conversational approach. But if I'm getting behind him as a freshman, sure, I'm like, I'll sit out and this will be the beginning of hopefully a number of different moments where we're making a point that we need to get more from from the schools. As far as the demands themselves, yeah, absolutely. I think I don't know I agree with that I agree with the whole CBA thing, but the first two, absolutely. The idea of making sure that your athletes are taken care of financially and otherwise that to me, I think is vital because they are vital parts of what make your school, your conference, and your company's money week in and week out for 16 weeks out of the year. Yes, to all of that. And so <laughs> I, off my soapbox no, now. <laughs> I agree. No, no, that's good. That's the, was the whole point. Like, this is a very big topic, and there's a lot to parse out. I mean, sports personalities and media have been talking about this for years and years for hours and hours and hours and hundreds of hours. So we're not going to solve it on a podcast, but I thought that the three demands made for great drama for the very reasons we're pointing out. That is that they're different than NIL. I cannot stress that enough, how important it is to note that this is not the same thing. I agree with you hundred percent, by the way, with that. Thank you. Cause you, you can have the ability to make money. And the argument I was having with this person on Reddit, they were like, there's plenty of low-level college athletes that are making millions off of NIL right now. And I was like, 
I call BS. That's not true. And he was like, well, there's these pair of twins at Stanford or wherever they were. And I think they're basketball twins, you know, and they're making they have a big, great deal. And I was like, yes, they're also very traditionally beautiful and models. And they're very good at basketball. Like they are not low level college athletes. They are not. You you could just take football, for example, because that's the sport we're in. And I just did the rough numbers while you were talking. And this is, I'm not going to give you like very, very specifics, but I just did very rough percentages of how many players are drafted into the NFL each year and how many players are on rosters every single year, right? And we're talking like 4%, maybe at most of college rostered players are getting drafted each year into the NFL. That's not a lot. (laughs) It's not a lot at all, right? And the vast, 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 vast majority of any college athletes are not going to have a career after they're done. And so what they have been fighting for for so long makes perfect sense to me in those first two. Some sort of money and some sort of medical insurance to protect them for when they do get hurt. If they're going to be willing to put their lives on the line to entertain us, then we should be willing to pay for that insurance somehow, whatever the case is. Now, the third one, I agree with you. I think that that complicates things in a way different manner. I mean, you truly are moving them from employees to, or from student athletes to employees at that point, and it changes everything. But I think that that's important to put into this group of demands because it shows that LaMarcus has these bigger goals and these bigger dreams, but that everything may not be quite realistic. And he doesn't, he does have a grasp on the importance and the effect of these things to some extent, but not the full picture. And that is what creates, that's what echoes reality. That's the problem. That's why we haven't solved it yet. Is because it's tough, it's complicated, and it's not just a matter of, oh, okay, we're going to take the $50 Nike contract from that jackass conference commissioner who spent the public's, you know, advertising or this marketing deal money on escorts, and we're just going to take it away from him and give it to the players. It's not, it doesn't happen quite like that. And you mentioned Catherine Poe, the litigator's really impassioned speech about how she was a swimmer at Duke, and she, I think she said swimmer from our track and field and she experienced some of this as well and she was saying listen if you take the money away and you redirect it to athletes you can't pay everybody and still have everybody get the cut that they want and what is going to end up ultimately happening is sports are going to go away and we've even seen this an example of it in the pandemic as soon as all of our seasons started getting canceled, Patrick, some schools lost sports and they're not coming back. So that's a horrible consequence. But when you have these things driven by revenue, that's what keeps the programs going. That's not counting paying the players and putting insurance on the table. You want to do that for hundreds of thousands of student athletes, you're not going to have as many sports. So now the opportunities are going to go away. So which do you want? Neither is the perfect solution because we live in a gray world. There's rarely a perfect solution. I think that's one of the things that this movie shows. This is just an example of a thing in the world that is incredibly complex. And because of that, I love 
what you say here. And the reality is getting the issue out is the most important thing. And I think LaMarcus and Emmett come to terms with that at the end of the movie. I do. I think they understand. And that's what that kind of Rogue One message is all about. Somebody has to start the revolution. Somebody has to be the martyr. Somebody has to be the sacrificial cow or lamb, sorry, and say, I'm going to give up my opportunity to ignite the public's demand for this to actually start happening. And it sucks. <laughs> and it breaks your heart for those people. But it also makes you, I think, inspired and respect the heck out of them for what they're doing. Because the reality is, these demands were never going to be met in three days. And I think that these two guys showed me enough over the course of this film to know that they knew that. They know very, very well that there was not a possible chance in heck that they were the NCAA was just going to be like, okay, y'all aren't going to play the national championship game. We're just going to go ahead and admit we're going to do this in the next 24 hours and it's all good. They knew better than to think that that would happen. They knew they were fighting a long game. and. Hopefully that's what happens there. You do need so many more exploratory committees and you have to get that conversation started, but you need oversight too. And I think that's one of the things that really is shown here is each and every layer of person that is involved in this has skin in this game, both has a benefit. Well, most of them have some sort of benefit that could come from this. And also they show something to lose so for the coach who has fought all this time to get to this stage and it's his one shot at finally winning a title and he gives jakey simmons is perfect to this role by the way it is an absolutely phenomenal piece of casting i would run through a wall for him whether i agreed with him or not but when he gives this whole speech about glory and money and crap and he says, you know, there is no glory in money, no life-altering challenge in money, no confrontation with your deepest fears, and therefore no greatness in money. And whether he's just saying it or whether he believes it or not, it's powerful. And he talks about it, you know, and there is something to be said about that. There is something to be gained from absolutely I'm not giving up this shot. Man, I have worked so hard to get here. And anybody else out there in the student-athlete world that didn't have this opportunity would tell me, don't you dare give it up. Like, I would kill to be in your shoes. And it's just, there's so many levels to the complexity of this. And I think that the film does a great job of showing us that. And even Donovan, the other guy, the... NCAA spokesperson, I guess. I don't really know what his role is. He feels like he's just there, but he's some sort of you know, NCAA spokesperson. And he says that toward the end of the film, he says, listen, college football is more important than you, me, Emmett, or whatever really is on that phone, speaking about the blackmail stuff on Coach Lazar's cell phone. He says the American people will let the state of Missouri fall into the sea rather than give up Saturday afternoon, drunk, rooting for their alma mater. We're as inevitable as the rain. And I think that's a beautiful, horrific line, because it is 100% true. 
yeah, every Saturday there are sacrificial lambs. The obvious ones are the players on the field that risk their lives, risk concussions, risk broken legs, and we cheer because we love our sports. And you and I would make the argument that, well, I think you are living in Seattle, you have more of a professional perspective because you have NFL teams and NHL teams. So you have professional teams that you can pull for. But, you know, living in Arkansas, there's not that. So we fall back on tradition. We fall back on it just means more, the SEC. And so there's this perception built up, honestly, by the media. Because until, what, a decade ago, until this whole college football playoff came around and the BCS was ruling and we started seeing consistency with one particular conference getting to the BCS National Championship in spite of the fact that the whole BCS is just nuts and dumb and whatever, the this particular conference is still dominating. And you have a network that is capitalizing on that. A network that owns Marvel, a network that owns Pixar, a network that owns Nat Geo, a network that is parented by Disney has now taken that message and has vaulted it and has made money off of it. And so every Saturday, particularly in the South, I can't speak for Big 12. I can't speak for Pac-12, whatever they're called now. I can't speak for the <laughs> what is probably soon to be the, the Big 3 from the Big 12 because everybody seems to be exiting. There is a juggernaut of pride and money to be made off of that pride that exists in college football specifically, more generally college sports and maybe specifically football and basketball. But let's just talk about football because that's what's on the table here. This is what rules television for four months in fall, in the fall and winter. I mean, look, I want Georgia to win tomorrow night. My conspiracy theory is that they played a lying dog in the SEC championship so that they can get their mulligan, so that they could throttle Alabama tomorrow night and say, just kidding, you're not so good. That's not going to happen because Nick Saban is like super coach, apparently. He should have like five statues you know, built for him at the end of his career, I imagine, by the great state of Alabama. But that in and of itself represents the value of college sports. Joe Paterno at Penn State was that way until... After he died, his legacy was tainted by everything that was going on up there. That statue got taken down. When you get a statue put up for you, you mean something to a group of people. You mean stuff to a state. You mean something to a university. And I think that the way that college football has sort of shaped how people enjoy sports on Saturday, you have more, more ability to connect in states that do not have professional sports teams. And up until the last two or three years, this movie really sort of bringing to light, you connected with them, not because they were paid the most or they were the most talented, but they went to your school. And it felt pure because they were playing because they loved the game. And for the purest, they'll tell you, scholarships are enough. You should get, you should be grateful that you're going to school for free. You should be grateful that you get to play on Saturday in front of 100,000 people. The purists would say that. 
this Coach film. Lazor says that in this movie. Well, and, and so I think he represents the purest, which is why that speech that he makes is so powerful and almost very cliche. Because there's absolute truth in what he says. Money is crap. There is something about glory and earning and valuing a championship. But what's next? Let's say he won. Let's say he wins the national championship. Let's say he does it without LaMarcus, which he, you know, obviously at the end of the movie, we see that LaMarcus is not playing. Well, now it's not about you won that great national championship. What people are going to say now, especially at your university, can you do it again? Now that you've won a national championship, you've now raised the bar. Look, LSU's the same way. Ed Ogeron coached the most amazing, in my opinion, the most amazing college football team ever because of the perfect storm of players and coaches that were there. And then he goes five and five and six and seven the following two seasons. And he's let go in the middle of the season a year and a half later. That's how high of a standard fans and alumni and boosters have for their universities. You don't do that in the NFL. Why? Because players are paid and they could just say, all right, well, <laughs> I've got a contract. I'll just go somewhere else or I'll just sit on my laurels. And you have coaches. The loyalty, at least from a perception standpoint, isn't there in pro sports because on paper and on the surface, it's driven by contracts. LeBron James is a fantastic basketball player and he was once, once Cleveland royalty. But now he's an L.A. Laker. So when he retires, will people know him as the L.A. Laker or as the Cleveland Brown or Cleveland Brown, the, the Cleveland Cavalier? Well, it depends on who you ask. Does it, you know, same thing with Albert Pujols. He spent more years now. He spent more years in just as many years as an Anaheim Angel as he did as a St. Louis Cardinal. And now he's an L.A. Dodger. So when he retires, where's his love? He's a Cardinal. Be? He's a see, you say as a Cardinal, why? Because you fell in love with him as a Cardinal. And you know what? Right. I got to go see him in an angel game. His records came as a Cardinal. His records came as a Cardinal. But, so, but longevity doesn't matter. Records I, matter there, right? Re records and loyalty. Freddie Freeman, I want him to stay a Brave. Even though he's got his World Series, I want him to stay because to me, he is Braves royalty. To see him in a Yankee uniform or any other uniform, would make me sick to my stomach. But the fact is, he is a father and a husband, and he is taking care of himself and his family. And I can't blame him for that. College athletics are completely different, Aaron, because these are students that choose to come to school to play football. They choose to go into the NFL. They choose, and they choose the, what you call the consequences or the steps that it would take to get to play on a an NFL field, and that includes combines. That includes physicals to make sure that they're ready to go. And so when you look at that, when you look at the college landscape, the perception is purity. But the fact is a movie like this, a story like this, casts a great light on the fact that no, it's not. It's capitalism taking advantage of that perceived purity and banking on it. That's a beautiful tangent. Or transition to what I wanted to talk about. So it's perfect because I completely agree with everything you're saying. And I want to just take that even a little bit more. And that is the fact is that kids would be student athletes and they would be performing the same way, performing, generally speaking, they would still be competing on a football field for four years because they love playing football and because they have a dream of being 
taken into the NFL, whether there was money or not. But because there's money, it corrupts the essence of how that process takes place. So when there's less money on the table in Division III NCAA, kids have no real hope of going to the NFL, but they want to play college basketball or college football or college swimming. They don't, they're not going to go pro. They're not going to be in the Olympics, but they love it. So they do it. Guess what? They still struggle to go to class. They still put in incredible amount of hours and can't have a part-time job because they don't have time because they're training. The pressure is not as high for their performance probably, but those, that same experience, most of it still exists. And when coach Lazar says that it's both such a truth bomb, but also such a great realistic moment of someone using a slave reference in a media aspect and then the public like firestorm that comes with that. I thought that was a great example of what it's like these days. In reality, someone says something without even thinking about it and then they're canceled <laughs> forever. Right. Because this guy, he asks him, he says, do you feel it's a modern form of day form of slave trade? And he, and he compares it. He says, like examining a slave's teeth to determine their price, only instead you're examining Lamarcus's knee to determine how much he's worth. And I think it's a completely unfair comparison, even if it is on the surface accurate, which is how he's making it, right? And the coach says, well, if you call getting a free top-tier education and four years of first-class accommodations and sizable living stipend, and then toss in once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to play in a national title game, the slave trade, then I'd love to be a slave. And if you just want to add that stupid last part, I think you might have almost been okay. But that's the reality is there is an element of what you're getting for this. There is payment. Is it enough? Probably not. Is it incredibly hard to take advantage of the benefits of that free top-tier education? Because of the commitment required, increases, 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 increases as the pressure goes up, as the higher level you are, the more prestigious program, the more likely you are to actually realize your dreams and be in the NFL. Therefore, you've got to push yourself even further. You've got to deal with the fact that there's teammates on your squad who need you to help make them look better. So you've got to push yourself to help make sure that guy achieves his goals because he has the potential to go for it. Like there's so many elements in play here. And so it is a mess and it does just constantly get complicated because of the amount of money that is made at this higher level. And the one part that I can never agree with is that conference guy, that conference chairman who is caught red handed by Catherine Poe saying, listen, I know where the money goes. I know it didn't all go to new green football fields. That's the corruption that makes it hard to stomach to me. If that money was being pumped back into the program somehow, even if it wasn't players being paid, frankly, Patrick, I don't know that I personally think that they all should be paid to play college football. I think the medical matters. I think that is the number one piece. If I was going to put a platform, get on a platform and say, this is the first thing that has to happen. It would be medical insurance, paying for the cost of any injuries, 
and disability insurance for those that are permanently injured in college athletics so that they are taken care of for the rest of their life. I believe in responsibility, though. Yeah. And I believe that if you're going to play a game that's going to put your body in danger, you choose to do that. You choose to take that risk. If you choose to take that risk because of you, a love of the game, cool. Mm-hmm. Who am I to tell you not to? If you choose to take that risk because you want to make money, cool. Who am I to tell you not to? If you choose to take that risk because your buddy needs you out on that field to look better, your choice. And you got to live with the consequences of, of anything that happens to you. But I don't think you should have to live with a financial consequence when you don't have the means to take care of that because right. you were too busy putting your all into this sport, right? So I think that's the big one that is almost impossible to disagree with or, or argue. And I think that's where it would have to start. But yeah, it's it's great complexity. And I think this movie does such a good job of bringing all of this in such a dramatic way, all these little pieces. And it doesn't stop and just get into a big, gigantic 20-minute section and monologue about one issue. It's just little nuggets and little phrases of dialogue that can make you realize how big of a problem it is and how every argument has a counter-argument. And I think that's the point of it, and that's what makes it entertaining to me. Yeah, I was reminded of, in light of the sheer amounts of money that coaches represented in the movie and in general get paid, Take Nick Saban, for instance. I mean, he is just being paid a stupid amount of money, buyouts, things like that. Ed Odron is going to be collecting a nice paycheck for the next three or four years because of an agreement in his contract. And the money that is seen back and forth from college coaches, from universities paid by boosters or alumni or whoever, is money that I will never, I'll, I'll never understand that sheer amount. And you could argue that that's way too much, that the grain is way too high and we're not getting any of it. And there's, there's a point to be made there. At the same time, I was reminded of an episode of the newsroom well, where the lead anchor, Will, is getting into an argument with somebody from Occupy Wall Street. and the point is made about how much he gets paid. He goes, I get paid what I get paid because that's what the market will bear. In other words, that's what I'm seen as what I'm worth. If Alabama chose to say tomorrow, Nick Saban, we need to take this money. For whatever reason, they're going to say, we can't pay you this anymore. We're going to cut your salary in half. He could absolutely leave and he probably would because he could probably get paid somewhere else at a higher rate. Or he would be loyal and say, you know what? I can live off of $3 million and not $6 million a year or however much he's getting paid. But the fact is, Alabama has the means to pay him what they pay him. They pay that men his money. <laughs> and he, I can't argue with that. If somebody, if my boss tomorrow came into my office and said, you know what? We're going to pay you $1.5 million to do the same job that you were doing last week. Are you okay with that? Do you think I'm going to say no? I'm not. What's changed though? Nothing. We just see more value in you and that's what the company is able to pay you. There's no way that I'm going to go back and say, you know what? I don't really feel comfortable with that because the people that I lead, they don't make that much money. The market will bear what it will bear and how it does that. 
That's a different story. Is it at the expense of players? Well, NIL is starting to at least help compensate for that, but it's not enough. What this movie is arguing, which I think is really effective, is taking care of the player. Not just paying them what they're worth, but taking care of them. And I think benefit, more than anything else, is what will probably be the reality that comes out of all these conversations in real life, is how do we make sure that the players, these student-athletes, are feeling like they're being taken care of as athletes as much as they are students. Giving them a full ride, that satisfies the student part of student-athlete. I'm grateful to go to a school where I don't have to get paid. And yes, the byproduct is that I'm going to give my all to this university. But the fact is, in order to give my all to this university, I need to be able to know that I can go to a hospital and be covered if my knee gets blown out. Because I can. Because there's enough new advancements in medicine that maybe in a year, you give me a red shirt like you do anyway. I mean, that's on the table. I can recover and maybe I can come back. That can be afforded. I think that there's enough money out there that you can do something like that. When you get in to start giving players salaries, now you're starting to get into, well, how do you know what a player's worth? Is it how many reps he gets as a, as a quarterback? Is it how many carries he gets as a running back? Does he have to go at least eight yards on average per right. carry to, to earn that? That's when it gets into a slippery slope. And then you get into the smaller athletic programs. Like, okay, well, I'm a, I've been a pro tennis. I've been a great tennis player my whole life. I got a full ride to the University of Tennis, Tennessee. I should get paid. Well, how do you define that? Is it how many matches you win? Is it how hard your forehand is versus your backhand? I mean, that, those sound like stupid arguments, but that's where it would go because you have two running backs that are getting equal time on the playing field because the coach says, you know what, having two running backs is better than having one because of his playing scheme. Well, how do you differentiate one running back scholarship player versus another and their worth? Do you pay them equally? Well, now you're getting into a whole slew of things. <laughs> you have our, our running backs part of a CBA, an individual pocket. Is that like a different subset of employment versus quarterbacks versus defensive linemen. And I think that that's where the movie doesn't try to like figure that out. But I think it brings to light the fact that you're absolutely right. I love what you said earlier that these two kids are just that. They're making these demands to put something out there to make waves so that people can start thinking about this. And there's this great moment at the end where their absence is conspicuous. The game does go on and it will go on. I don't see college football ever going away with or without amazing athletes at the helm. You could have people striking day and night, but the fact is college football is going to be played. may shift its emphasis from one conference to another, but the fact is I think what this movie does really well is through these characters, it opens up dialogue within the scope of the movie and then outside the scope of the movie. It allows us you and I, and then those who are listening to have that conversation, what's fair to a student athlete? How do we make sure that student athletes feel like they're being valued beyond just their bodies, but actually getting a quality education, taking care of them in mental, physical, and emotional ways. And so it, it, there's a lot there and it's probably for a different show altogether, but it's a, it's a heck of a conversation that I think this movie sparks uh, a really great dialogue. Yes, agreed. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if there's anything else to talk about, to be honest, because I had written down some things that, you know, we could talk about different elements of the film and 
some of the things that didn't work or whatever. But I don't know if that stuff matters, honestly. I, I, it, who cares? Like, I've written my pieces on the things about the movie that work and don't work. But for this conversation, I mean, this is what I wanted to discuss. And this is what I wanted to have. And that's why I love this movie and why it's one of my favorites of the year is for this reason. Because this is what comes out of when you sit down to talk about it. We sat down to review a movie, talk about how the film works, and you end up spending 45 minutes discussing the nuances of the actual topic that the movie is discussing itself. That's the point of a movie like this. That, to me, means it's a successful film that has executed its intention extremely well. And I wish that everyone would review just like that instead of arbitrarily. But uh, yeah, that's a... I don't know. It's probably as likely as college football players getting unionized. <laughs> one I can wish for, one uh, I won't. How about that? We'll just leave it there. <laughs> that's, that's fair. That's fair. But I, I don't have anything else, man. If there's something that I missed that you want to talk about before we go, feel free to cue it up. Otherwise, I enjoy. I don't it. have anything else. Yeah, yeah, I I did too. This was this was fantastic. And listeners, we hope that one you watch this movie before you listen to this conversation. But I mean, we've spoiled the little thing there's not a game to be played and they end up sending out so if you haven't seen the movie hopefully you've enjoyed the dialogue as much as anything else and that's really going to do it for us next week we are heading back to woodsboro for the latest or the newest edition of the scream franchise uh this is one that one of the few horror movies that slasher movies that i can actually get behind because of its premise i think it's pretty fantastic i've been actually going through the subsequent movies to get ready for it for the first time i actually hadn't seen two three or four i watched one back in 96 and then it's been a favorite of mine but i know aaron's like what why are we friends <laughs> but you know me you know, you've known me for a long time but no, i'm rectifying I, I know, that but like that's not horror i mean it is but it's not i know but it, it's still it, shocking it, to me so I'm not saying you're bad. I'm not. I'm not like. I'm not like disappointed mm. in you. I'm just. Yeah. yeah then uh, <laughs> maybe that was a little disappointment. But like it's most. Look, it's like twenty percent disappointment, eighty percent shock. Look, okay. You should be grateful that this time next week I will be sitting in this chair talking about this franchise with That's you. That's true. Okay? We've come a long way. So <laughs> be grateful. Be grateful for that. Okay. <laughs> so if you haven't guessed it already, we're covering the 2022 uh, Scream. <laughs> this week <laughs> so stay Prepare tuned for, for a rant about that title <laughs> scream again scream <laughs> they should just call it stab 12 <laughs> anyway all right well that's gonna do it for us and <laughs> thanks for this great conversation we'll talk soon hey everyone thanks again for listening if you enjoy the show we'd love to hear from you you can leave us a review on itunes or wherever you're listening these help increase visibility for the show grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at FeelinFilm, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling filmed.